Good afternoon, Lafayette. This is Joe Cunningham here on the Joe Cunningham Show. News Talk 96.5, KPL 232-1542, if you want to be part of the conversation. Thrilled to be here with you guys for the end of the week. Uh, I hope that it has been a fantastic week. One week closer to everybody gathering and celebrating Christmas, uh, however you choose to do it. Um, I'm I'm very excited for my friends, co- former co-workers, those who work in the public school system because y'all are out for two weeks and it is well earned. It has been a very interesting first half of the year, to say the least, particularly as we've had kind of this recurring problem of threats in schools and We've talked about it a bit, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna linger on it too long here. Um, our local school systems and our local law enforcement, I th- I think, have done a very good job of staying on top of it, taking each and every threat seriously, and making the arrests that were needed to let kids know this is very serious. You are going to get in trouble. And they need to know that. They need to know that this is a very serious thing. I mean, up to 15 years in prison, up to $15,000 in fines for terrorizing by forcing a school to shut down because of a threat. So you've had that. This is really this is really kind of the first full normal year in the post-COVID era. Yes, last year was a bit of a recovery from the COVID stuff, but this year is kind of the first full year where we're really and truly kind of through it. And the school started as normal and we've seen scores come back from the past two years. And we see that in Lafayette parish, we are on the right track and teachers have been working extremely hard to try to get kids on the right track. I'm I'm very I'm very envious of teachers. Um that's the one thing I miss about teaching is uh is the 2 weeks off for this time, but at the same time, I'm I'm going to be out uh Monday through Wednesday of next week just to take care of some Christmas stuff while, you know, I have a chance to before Christmas actually hits. Some last minute stuff. But I am like I said very jealous of my friends and also, you know, Kudos to the students for making it through this first half of the year because it has been a very challenging year for them as well. All right, so anyway, 232-1542, if you want to join in the conversation, you can also reach out through the KPL app chat. Uh, lots to discuss today. Uh, just a bunch going on, and I want to start with... I, so... I need to start with this because it's important from a journalism perspective, but at the same time, it's it, it's something that a lot of y'all probably don't really care about, other than what you've heard, like Elon. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Dan Bongino and others kind of mentioned, and that's the Twitter stuff. So last night, Elon Musk goes on a suspension rampage on Twitter. Several reporters had been tracking the the real time location of Elon Musk's private jet. And he came out and said 
giving the real-time information is basically like giving uh, directions for assassination. And he's saying this because some crazed protester tracked his vehicle, jumped on top of it, and terrorized that vehicle. Elon Musk wasn't in it, but his child was. And so obviously he's going to be very defensive of that. Now, a lot of the journalists that were suspended were either activists who are trying to they, they they routinely attack Elon Musk ever since he bought Twitter because Twitter was their safe space. They were in control there. But there are a small handful of those journalists whose jobs are covering Elon Musk and Twitter. And if that's their job description, I feel more pity than anything else for them because that is the worst beat possible. Hi, you have reached the upper echelons of the journalism industry, you are working for a legacy media outlet like the Washington Post or the New York Times or the Los Angeles Times or NBC or CNN or whatever, and you're being told to track a billionaire in his possession of a social media network. That's just, that's just mean. Why? I don't know why you would do that to an employee, but that's just mean. But anyway... So Elon Musk goes on this Twitter rampage. The journalists are out screaming, what about free speech? What about free speech? What about free speech? And the right is like, we've lived under these rules. Conservatives on Twitter have done far less and got suspended for far longer than seven days. And the journalists said nothing then. Let's go back to the Hunter Biden story in the Washington Post. Let's go back there. And let's remember that first... They locked the New York Post's account for sharing the Hunter Biden story because it was election misinformation or whatever they wanted to call it. That it was Russian propaganda. Something like 50 intelligence officials all came out and said, this is very clearly Russian disinformation, Russian propaganda that's meant to affect the influence the election. And all the news organizations are now out there saying, yeah, it's legit. But at the time, if you shared it, you were blocked. You, you couldn't share the link. At some point, people who were sharing it were actually suspended. Their accounts were locked. They weren't able to get into their accounts. Twitter effectively banned them, and they weren't able to get back in unless they deleted that link. And the New York Post was suspended, not able to get into its account because they kept the story up. No reason for it, because we know the story's true. But that is where the journalists were sticking to their guns. Oh, it's a private company. They have the right to do that. And also it's their responsibility to fight against Russian disinformation and in, uh, attempts to impact the, the election. And they were all quiet about that. But the moment that the suspensions hit them, they start screaming bloody murder. And I'm sorry, I feel no remorse. There's a guy on Twitter named Aaron Rupar. You don't know Aaron Rupar unless you're active on Twitter. And if you're active on Twitter and you're a conservative, what you know about Aaron Rupar is that he routinely takes clips of Republicans and conservatives saying things, takes them out of context, and, pro- and projects them in the worst possible light for clicks and retweets. He was suspended for being one of the ones to share the real-time location of Elon Musk's private jet. Do I think Elon Musk should ban somebody for posting the information of his jet. No, I do not. You can find that information very easily on the internet. 
However, pre-Musk owning Twitter, conservative Twitter accounts were flagged without warning to be suspended over things like saying learn to code when the journalism industry was being hit with layoffs. That was considered hate speech. Saying learn to code to a journalist was considered hate speech because journalists were being laid off as their industry was dying. Now that Elon Musk knows Twitter, uh, owns Twitter, reporters are warned about a specific action that will lead to suspension. They do it anyway. They get suspended and they, they, they claim their outrage. I'm sorry. I don't feel any remorse. There's one tweet out there that makes that that it lays it out perfectly. The left and journalists on Twitter are more concerned with the location of Elon Musk's jet than the names of the people who were on Jeffrey Epstein's jet. That's it. Do you know why? Because journalism journalists are a protected class on social media. They believe that they are above those rules. They are doing so because it's for the good of the country and the good of you, and you need to listen to what they say because they're the ones giving you the right information and everything else is Russian propaganda, et cetera, and so forth. They are not a protected class. They are subject to the same rules as everybody else. They willingly, knowingly broke those rules, and they got suspended. Is it right? Is it fair? No. Did they get suspended for breaking the rules? Yes. Did they know the rules? Yes. And when conservatives, my friends, me, when we were getting flagged and suspended and locked out of our accounts for doing things that were in no way a clear violation of the rules, we were not told they were a violation of the rules. There is no way that some of the things that were being posted were a violation of the rules. The journalist said nothing. When arbitrary suspensions, arbitrary deplatformings were happening, they said nothing. So now that they're getting hit for breaking rules that they knew about, I feel absolutely no pity. All right, 232-1542, if you want to be part of the conversation, we're going to take a break, and we will be back in just a moment here on the Joe Cunningham Show. News Talk 96.5, KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5, KPL 232-1542. If you want to be part of the conversation, be glad to uh, talk to you. Uh, coming up in the next segment, after the bottom of the hour news, my friend Stephen Gutowski had him on the air with me before. Uh, he is in charge of the Reload.com. He is also now a CNN analyst on gun issues. Fantastic guy, solid conservative. Uh, we're going to talk about some kind of shady statistic hiding coming from the CDC on guns. So I want to talk with him about that and and kind of get his take on it because it's a really fascinating story and a pretty troubling story coming from a federal administration. Uh, real quick, so earlier uh, when I was doing the weather, at that point had not had uh, any anything up on our traffic board, but right now we've got a vehicle accident with injuries that's on Ambassador Caffrey uh, in the 1800 block. That is uh, near the Tobacco Plus uh, 
near the Tobacco Plus and uh, where Ambassador Caffrey uh, intersects with West Avondale Drive. So be careful on that. We've also got a vehicle accident in the 3000 block of Louisiana Avenue. That seems to be uh, that seems to be near or uh, near the shopping center just off I-10. So be careful in traffic out there, uh, especially now getting close to the holidays. Um, so going back to what I was talking about, and, and this is this is something that, that really does uh, bother me about journalism and journalists in general. I went to journalism school, got a degree in journalism. It was in broadcast. I was trained for TV, loved radio a lot more. Uh, but I went to journalism school. I understand the rules as journalists are taught, and journalists are taught to report the story, not be the story. And modern journalism has twisted that a good bit. Modern journalism now is all about telling telling people how to react to the story by portraying and framing the story in a way they want you to hear it. They influence your perspective, and it's done in conservative and liberal media. Do not get me wrong. I, When I was doing print, I prefer commentary to hard news writing. I just do that. I lean more toward that, but I understand that there's a difference between hard news writing and commentary. And when I have to do hard news writing, you have to put in both sides. You're not supposed to try to influence the audience in any way. But most journalists, especially the ones working for these major legacy networks and papers, they feel a need to tell you how to perceive the story. And it comes from a theory in mass communication. So mass communications is one of those uh, one of those liberal arts, those kind of a mix of the liberal arts and the sciences because they look at data and all this, and they they have theories, just like any social uh, social science. They have their, their theories on this. And the social science theory of mass communication that most journalists either consciously or subconsciously subscribe to is the idea of agenda-setting theory. Now, agenda-setting theory is this idea that you, as the viewer, are to sit there and you are going to be told the most important stories of the day by the news anchor, by the front page of the paper, whatever media you're consuming. And it's the job of the journalists, the anchors and the editors and the people who put these stories together and arrange them for you. They're the ones who tell you how you're going to start your day, what news stories you're going to hear, how you're going to interpret them. It's agenda setting theory. And agenda setting is how most media truly operates. You know what agenda setting theory is, even if you've never heard it, because you know that that popular saying about television news, if it bleeds, it leads, that sort of thing. The violent crimes, all that stuff gets moved to the top because it's deemed most important. Even though that may not be what's actually most important to you, it is framed to you, it is brought to you in such a way that they are telling you that it's most important, that that's how you should perceive it. So while the mass media arranges its stories, it has its top-of-the-fold, 
front page news and the TV stations give you, this is the big story, top of the hour, we're going into this. They are telling you that that is the story that they deem most important. Now, when it comes to radio shows like this, we flat out tell you we think this is the most important story. Most of those other people are, frankly, dishonest. They don't tell you. They just go into it and and lead you to believe it's the most important story. Like the other day, I told you I felt that the fentanyl story was the most important story of the day, and I stand by that because I really and truly think it is. You may disagree, and you may have another most important story of the day, but let me tell you why I think it was. But most journalism acts like they're the ones who are supposed to set the agenda. And when things like Elon Musk buying Twitter and controlling the narratives, or actually removing the controls over the narratives, when that happens, they flip out. All right, my friend Stephen Gutowski joins me next. Bottom of the hour news coming up here on the Joe Cunningham Show. News Talk 96.5 KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5 KPL. There's your Christmas music. I'm going to have more uh, Christmas bumpers coming into the uh, into the rotation here soon. But uh, I think it's always fun when you can mix the Imperial March with any Christmas carol. And the Carol of the Bells is just so uh, so very imposing. It just kind of matches up with some of those darker sounds. All right. Joining me on the phone, Stephen Gutowski. He is the editor, the publisher at The Reload. He's also a CNN analyst. And he's probably the smartest guy that we can talk to when it comes to guns and gun issues. Stephen, how are you, man? Hi, I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing all right. Uh, so this story came. Uh, this this story popped up in front of my eyes yesterday. Had to contact you immediately. Say, hey, let's talk about this because it really seems like a pretty big issue that folks who are. Uh, who are advocates of guns, gun safety, and guns being used for self-defense, it, it seems like an issue they should really be paying attention to. Uh, so you've got a piece out at The Reload, thereload.com. Email shows CDC removed defensive gun use stats after gun control advocates pressured officials in private meeting. So uh, what it looks like is one of the, uh, one of the gun, uh, gun control advocates at this meeting, uh, Mark Bryant, and this is the direct quote from him, and this is kind of what I want to use to lead into it. That 2.5 million number needs to be killed, buried, dug up, killed again, and buried again. It is highly misleading. It is used out of context, and I, I honestly believe it has zero value, even as an outlier point in honest DGU discussion. So first of all, the 2.5 million number uh, is... Estimated defensive gun uses uh, from the CDC's uh, defensive gun study. And that so there's a number between 60,000 and 2.5 million uh, defensive gun uses per year in the United States, correct? Yeah, well, so it's not from a study the CDC did. It's from a review of other studies that were already out there. That the, this is what was on the CDC's website. This range that had a link to this paper the CDC had commissioned looking at gun research on the topic of defensive gun uses. And so the low range comes from one study or, or one survey, and the high range comes from a different survey. It's very well known at this point as uh, the criminologists from Florida State University, Gary Kleck, put out. Uh, did surveys in the 90s, and that was the number that he came up with mm-hmm. for how many 
uh, defensive gun uses there are per year. And so the, the CDC was merely, um, you know, saying here's the range that studies have uh, come up with, and here's a link to a paper that, you know, shows you more information on each of the different studies. Um, that's what the gun control advocates were upset about, that that the higher range, the higher end number was included in this range. They don't like that um, for several reasons, which I'm sure we'll get into here, but, but um, that's what they wanted removed, and that's ultimately what the CDC ended up doing. They removed references to that. Gotcha. Uh, and uh, it, it happened after this sort of private pressure campaign. So it, it's, it certainly does seem like the CDC is caving to uh, gun control groups in this, but are some of the statistical concerns here legitimate from from these gun from these uh, these gun control advocacy groups? Are, are could some of the criticism like the, the I mean statistically that is a big range sixty thousand and two point five mm-hmm. million that is a big statistical range. Are some of these criticisms kind of considered valid even outside of the ideological partisan groups? Yeah, well, so the the reason the range is so big is because they they look at the question in different ways and they measure it uh, with different methodologies. And uh, that's actually what, so in addition to having range in there, that is the other thing the CDC had said in its, on its website and still says now, basically the number you get is going to be different depending on how you try to measure it. And there are strengths and weaknesses to all approaches to measuring defensive gun use, as there are in trying to measure all kinds of stuff. So, you know, to answer your question, yes, there are legitimate critiques of the method uh, of really using um, surveys at all to try and judge defensive gun uses because it can be difficult to, you know, verify uh, things that are incidents that are never reported to the police or make it into the news. That is one of the critiques that these gun control advocates had put forward in their uh, arguments to the CDC. But these aren't, again, these aren't like new arguments. This is sort of the debate that's been going on since the 90s. Uh, The CDC had this on their website for years without issue um, and only changed it after the complaints from this group of uh, gun control advocates. It, it seems to me, and you know, you you obviously look at this stuff a lot more than I do. Um, this seems to me like, just in general, if you're hiding data, even if there are st- statistical legitimacy concerns, the the less information you're putting out, you're taking down certain bits of information because one side or another asks you to. That seems to be more harmful to the idea of getting that information, that data out to Americans than any critique about misleading information. Um, am I kind of close to the right. mark, you think, on that? Yeah, I th- to me, the story here is less whether or not the Gary Kleck estimate is uh, you know, above all criticism or, or whether the um, estimate that Mark Bryant prefers, which is, about 2,000 per year, so you know, his estimate is wow. um, by far the lowest because they, 
because again, they use a completely different methodology for counting. They only rely on uh, incidents that are high profile enough to make it into the news or into police press releases. So, um, you know, you can see the vast discrepancy would be based on how you go about counting these things. Right. Um, whereas the CLEC is trying to, is doing a survey that directly asks people, uh, you know, a representative study or survey of Americans and just ask them whether or not they've used a gun for self-defense. Uh, and there's, you know, there's, CLEC's not the only one who's done it that way. There have been a number of, of surveys that try to tackle this question. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's sort of the difference in appro- the the basic difference in approaches. Yeah. One you, one asks people, and so you're going to get a lot of incidents that um, you know where no one even fired a shot, and so it's unlikely to make it into the news or to uh, end up in a police press report or even even a police report at all. Yeah. Right. If if uh, you know people aren't always calling the cops if they solve the situation themselves and no one got hurt. Right. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, the, that approach is vulnerable to things like, um, over us, people misremembering when an event happened, people saying that something happened when it didn't, because they think that's what the interviewer wants to hear or the exact opposite is also another potential problem. And then of course, if you just look at incidents that make it into the news, well, you're really only counting the highest profile defensive gun uses uh, in a given time period because, again, the vast majority of these are unlikely to ever end up in your local news report uh, for a whole host of reasons. But, um, yeah, and so it's fair enough to debate, like, what's the best way to measure this stuff, what's the right number to come out to, uh, most of the survey ones end up on the much higher end, uh, you know, in the millions closer to what Cleck found. Um, surveys that are you know, methodologies that try to verify every single offensive gun use and only count the ones they can verify end up very small, yeah. like GBAs and then, you know, gun violence archives. But the bigger problem to me is not, you know, all right, we're going to have this debate. It's that the CDC. <laughs> change the language on their website based off of private um, conversations they had with one, with, with a group of people who represented one point of view, didn't reach out to anyone else, yeah. didn't even announce they were making this change in any way. And, um, and uh, you know, that's not really how you want a public agency, public you know, leading scientific agency to operate. And and they ended up removing information from people's immediate access, right? This is the website where if you're looking for the CDC's information on defensive gun uses, that's where you're going to end up. It's yeah. their Fast Facts website. And the the truth is that while the new language just says more research is needed, it's fairly innocuous. They're not endorsing one point of view or the other, uh, it did remove the link to the review paper that the CDC itself commissioned. So you're sort of taking away information from, you know, the audience. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree with that a whole lot. I think it is very problematic for the CDC um, to just have this meeting, hear this one's point of view, and just decide to remove information from their facts page. I think that is a huge issue, and I think it's indicative of a larger problem that we're kind of seeing in federal agencies right now where they are leaning in a certain uh, political partisan direction when they decide to hear from certain groups and make changes without really discussing, like you said, with both sides or, or even it's not even that so much. It's the transparency issue here. I I have I mean, this was a private meeting and they made the decision after one private meeting and you guys found out and have reported it. And it sounds like there's a lot of people from uh, from the people who take these surveys, uh, the scholars who take these surveys to uh, Republican lawmakers. There's a, there are a lot of people who have issues with it because it, it, it really does lack the transparency. Yeah. And, and, you know, I do think it goes to a deeper issue of, uh, credibility of the CDC, and and when they act this way, when they do things that are controversial in private, without uh, after consulting people who have a uh, a very clear point of view, who are clearly asking for changes based on uh, the political impact of those changes. Right? I mean, Mark Bryant, I think you have the quote in front of you, but yeah. But he says uh, he's very clear about why he doesn't, you know, he has, yes, statistical critiques of the CLEC surveys, but he also is pretty explicit in why he doesn't like it, and it's because of the political impact of those numbers, too. Yeah, definitely. Um, Man, this is, this, I think that, like I said at the beginning, I think that a lot of, folks who are on the pro-Second Amendment, uh, you know, and pro-gun safety side, I think that there's a lot to really read into this. And, and hopefully, hopefully they do so by going to the reload.com and catching this story. I do recommend you guys go there. Steven's a fantastic reporter. You've got a good team, too. It's not just you. you you're able to, to hire some good guys to go out and report on these stories, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Jake Fogelman's a... One of our contributing writers, he's he's done a fantastic job for us, um, and and yeah, we've had a we've had a number of contributors as well uh, to the site, and and that's what I'm trying to build is is a you know full fledged publication that's dedicated to you know sober serious reporting and analysis on guns, since there really isn't a lot of that out there right yeah. on on either spe- end of the spectrum. Um, and, and especially one that is, uh, you know, informed on the issues. So that's another problem you commonly run into yeah. with reporting on guns in uh, major media outlets. All right. And, of course, you're also on CNN as an analyst there. Stephen, uh, fantastic to talk to you. I went ahead and went long in this segment, so I've only got a few minutes when we come back. So before we go, is there anything else that you want to mention to my audience before we before we end our conversation here? No, you know, I think uh, keep following the story. I, I'm pretty sure there's going to be more to this. I would expect, uh, you know, with Republicans retaking the House, you're going to probably see oversight hearings on this specific topic. You know, as you, know, as you alluded to earlier, the Republicans and the CDC 
or, or have already have a strained relationship, and one that really dates back to the 90s when it comes to gun policy, uh, when former officials at the CDC used to openly advocate for uh, new gun bans. So, uh, you know, this is coming up at a time that's uh, particularly fraught for the agency, I think. All right, Stephen Gutowski with TheReload.com. Stephen, thank you very much for joining us today. Absolutely. All right, we're going to go ahead and take a break, and when we come back, we will wrap up the show here on News Talk 96.5 KPEL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5 KPEL, 232-1542 if you want to be part of the conversation. I don't have a whole lot of time left. I've got about a little under two minutes, minute and a half, Uh Rant went long with Stephen Gutowski, but I, I enjoy having Stephen on. Uh, he is an absolute wealth of knowledge when it comes to to gun issues here in the U.S. and does it better than anybody else. I cannot uh, I cannot recommend TheReload.com enough to y'all. Uh, it is, without a doubt, some of the best reporting on guns and gun issues here in the U.S. Now, real quick... Um, we've got another vehicle accident with injuries might cause some delays in travel. That is on uh, northeast of Vangelin, so be careful if you're out there on the road. Uh, I know that holiday travel is about to pick up a lot, too, so I want y'all to be very careful out there while you're driving. Uh, before we go, got a little bit of time left. Before we go, uh, I mentioned the Donald Trump NFTs, the Donald Trump d- digital trading cards. They sold out. They are gone. They were bought at $99 each. As of this morning, they were worth, if you tried to buy them off of somebody that owned them, they were worth more than double that. And that that disappoints me. Y'all, NFTs are such a grift. I mean, take the politics out of it. Non-fungible tokens are such a grift here in the U.S. Please do not get involved in those. All right. That's going to do it for me today and for the week. I am off Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Monday will be a best of Mark Pope filling in for me Tuesday and Wednesday. Then I'll be back Thursday and Friday to round out the week right before Christmas. You guys have a fantastic weekend. I will talk to you again real soon. Follow me on Twitter at Joe P. Cunningham, Facebook.com slash Joe Cunningham Show. And, of course, sign up for my daily newsletter. I haven't put anything on there lately. I promise I will. JoeCunninghamShow.substack.com. Shannon is offsides next here on News Talk 96.5 KPL.